Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Yeah, but the thing about back pain is if it comes and goes, yeah, that implies it's not a physiological problem, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because some days it's bad, some days it's not bad, and you go, why did I have no pain yesterday? Well, that's because I wasn't talking to the studio this morning and their stupid <laughs> idea, and suddenly I have back pain. And uh, on Men in Black 3, my back pain was so bad, and over Christmas vacation, I needed to hire a new writer. The producers wouldn't let me. Uh, it was just a mess, and I was on this conference call, and I just screamed at them. Yeah. And you know what Dr. Sarno says is the reason you have this back pain is your unconscious mind gives you the pain because you fear that if you express your anger, you may really hurt someone that right. you love or you know lose your job. I screamed at them, hung up the phone. And I was Dr. Strangelove at the end of Dr. Strangelove. I stood up out of my chair with no pain. And I basically said, mine Fuhrer, I can walk. And I literally, <laughs> all my pain went away. And all I needed to do was scream at Sony Pictures. And that's all. And the producers. And that's, that's all it took for until the next uh, big problem. <laughs> well. Uh, it, it, that that's the intro to my talk uh, with Barry Sonnenfeld, <laughs> with the uh, esteemed director and uh, producer and cinematographer, Bon Vivant and raconteur, uh, <laughs> with, <laughs> who uh, we you I worked on a movie. You hired yes, me you for did. a movie uh, called Big Trouble, which was a lot of fun to make. Uh, a lot of night shoots down in Miami. Uh, and, and again, and also playing golf with Patrick Warburton right. and uh, hearing funny stories about him getting waxed because uh, <laughs> <laughs> he needed to he, There's a stripper scene at the end of that and he needed to get waxed. And uh, I I'll, see. Leave, I'll leave that for him to tell. Uh, it involves an erection. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I've working with you was you're one of the most fun directors I've ever worked with. Very, you're just a really funny guy. And I saw that you have a book coming out and I thought, well, here's a good excuse to get you on here and to talk about this. And and the name of the book is Barry Sonnenfeld, call your mother. Yes. And that, and I knew exactly what that was from because I was on set and it was late. It's like three o'clock in the morning or That's something. Right. And I was telling a story about my mom and just kind of, and I said like, you know, 
you know, for comedic effect, I said something to, you know, like, oh, that bitch or something. And somebody was like, you can't talk that way about your mother. And you said, no, no, let him, let him <laughs> say whatever he wants. And then you told the story about where the title comes from, which go ahead and, and let him hear that. Well, the title of the book, uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, is because uh, on April, as April 28th was becoming April 29th, I'm sorry, January 28th, becoming January 29th, at 2.20 in the morning, and that's very important, over the PA... Which year is this? This is 1970. I was 17 years old. I was a senior at Music and Art High School. I was with my girlfriend. We were at the Madison Square Garden Peace Concert with like Harry Belafonte and, you know, Peter, Paul and Mary and and Jimi Hendrix, of all people. And he had left the stage earlier because he wasn't feeling the vibe. Now he's back. It's 2.20 in the morning. He's tuning up his guitar. He's like whispering to various members of his band. And as he gets ready to play his first chord over the PA system (laughs) comes the announcement, Barry Sonnenfeld, call your mother. So, A, how amazing is it that my mother, I I say she had strength through weakness, was able to get someone to answer the phone. Yes. Then get someone to say, I'll connect you with the PA guy. Yes. Then someone to say, okay, we'll make the announcement. Yes. And All that meant, yeah, incredibly like you the, in order to do that, one can only imagine the lawyering that went on in that conversation. The weeping. Out, yes. The lawyering, the weeping. the So so, of course, I know that the only reason this could ever happen is that my father was dead. Right. So, yes. A, I stand up announcing to the garden that I am. Barry Sonnenfeld. So it starts in the cheap blue seats because we are in the upper deck. But, you know, it starts a cascade. Yes. The orange and yellow seats is the chant, as only the garden can do. Barry. Barry. So that's not good. No. I don't think it reached Jimmy, but it's not good. (laughs) I'm weeping. I get to a payphone. This is obviously before cell phones right. or anything like that, or even Motorola pagers. And I, I'm weeping. I call my mother at home. I say, who's dead? She says, what are you talking about? I said, is dad dead? She goes, no, Sonny, he's sleeping, of course. I go, who died? She says, well, I thought you did. I said, what are you talking about? Well, you said you'd be home at 2. It's 2.20. So I said, didn't they tell you the concert was still going on? And she said, oh, I knew it was still going on, but they couldn't prove you were there. Uh, and I, and I, bet, I bet you totally got laid that night, too. You know, ironically, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I convinced my mother that since it was so late, I couldn't take Susan back to Laurelton, Queens on the E or F train. Yeah. So Susan got to uh, sleep in our living room, on our living room couch. And the next morning when my parents went to work, uh, I did discover Susan had beautiful satin magenta panties. 
but <laughs> I didn't get laid. <laughs> it's like your, your memories are so photographic. It's, you know, you That's got into the I right do. business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, tell me, I, I mean, you're from, you're, are you from New York City or are you from Queens? I mean, oh, I mean, Washington I Heights. New York City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I meant Manhattan. Yeah, um, Manhattan, Upper Washington yeah. Heights. Yeah. And has your, have your people been there a long time or? Well, uh, my people, both Jewish parents, uh, lived in Washington Heights, although their parents came from Europe or something. But right. the Heights, when I grew up there, it went from German Jew then Cuban, then Puerto Rican, then Dominican. Okay. So over the 20 years that I was stuck in Washington Heights, it went through literally four iterations. And you and but your folks were stalwarts. They didn't want to go anywhere. Well, they didn't want to give up the uh, crack. Which, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I eventually bought them an apartment on the Upper West Side because it was it was getting kind of dangerous. Yeah. And then eventually my mother died. And then when my father moved in, eventually moved in with his girlfriend and I sold this apartment, my father claimed he should get the, the, the profit because I never would have bought this apartment if they didn't need an apartment. And I explained to him it didn't work. He was a no, salesman. I, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. work that way, Dad. Yeah. No. Although he has a new girlfriend now. And, he, you know, he's probably got... A whole new reason to spend money. So well, now they're now dad's dead too. But dad died in his late nineties, and which oh, wow. is pretty. Yeah, yeah. And my mother died in her eighties. But neither of them were good parents. They were kind of horrible. And that were you were you aware of that early on? I mean, as a as a youngster, were you aware? And were first of all, are you the only kid? Yes, of course. Oh boy, that's even worse. They could <laughs> well, they could aim that Sauron's eye of bad parenting <laughs> just on you alone. No, they really could. But it's you know, listen, it allowed me to become a director because as an only child, you want to be in charge of everything, and that's kind of what directing did. So uh, yeah. does so it worked. But no, no, I was an only child, and mom was very. They were both total narcissists, you know. Mom through depression and and all that, and it all had to be about her. And dad was a narcissist and had endless affairs. But literally, the when I was five years old, my father woke me up and said, "Come on, you have to talk to your mother. She wants to kill herself, oh. and you you have to convince her not to." I'm five. Yeah, yeah. So I brought my piggy bank and said I'd pay her my money if if uh, she wouldn't kill herself. And she was weeping and saying, I don't want to live anymore. So I, eventually, I guess I convinced her not to kill herself. But those were the kind of parents I had. I mean, I really should not have been dragged into that discussion. Oh, no, of course not. And it's the kind of thing. I mean, I never had anything that extreme, but I do think that I uh, was a victim of oversharing. I'll just put it that way. Uh, yeah, right. And, uh, <laughs> and and I can't I can't be as frank as you because everyone's still alive. Uh, but uh, I, that, I wouldn't have cared. I, I wish they no, really. would read how mean I am to them in <laughs> in, in the book. It would it would have brought me great joy. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Did um, but yeah, no, I was. But I all it takes is having a child and you. So many things that you take for granted, like oh well, that's just the way. 
that person is and oh you, you know things where you know there i would go to dinner and and friends or you know girlfriends would be like what's what's with your mom i mean is something did something happen like what are you talking about right. like no yeah. she just seems like there's a she was at a funeral like right. <laughs> that's, that's just, mom yeah that's that what, why why even think about it just you know don't even concern yourself with that. Just sort of navigate around that. And then, you know, you have a kid and you're like, oh, yeah, right. That's not fair. Now, how many kids do you have? I have two. I have a 19-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter. And how did you do? Uh, I think I did pretty well. I just, I actually just got divorced. So we were married for 25 years. And uh, and I, I think of the whole thing as being uh, actually really successful. You know, I mean, it didn't. It didn't last forever, but um, there was a lot of really wonderful times, and my kids are great, and I think that they're, uh, I think they've been very well parented, I do think. I mean, I don't, not to, you know, throw my back out patting myself, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I do think I, I learned a lot from the mistakes of, of my parents, you know, I, or for, from what I think was just kind of you know, if you want to be generous, you can just say sort of the naivete of of that age, you know, right? Uh, because it's and there's a lot of that, like people didn't know any better, which sometimes, you know, that only works up to a certain point. I mean, you ought to instinctively know that to get a five year old to not tell his, you know, to try and talk his mother out of suicide is not a healthy thing to do. No, it's yeah. not. But you know, what I find interesting about being a parent, but you seem to have avoided this, is you you think you've learned all these lessons as a child and that you're not going to be that parent. Yeah. And I think I horribly, I in, in too many ways, I became, in spite of hating myself for it, I became my parents. And in some ways, my daughter is becoming me. And oh, really? I think it's really, yeah, yeah. You know, she's pushy and uh, she also gets to the airport, you know, five, six hours early. Uh, and, you know, she she started to see a, a psychologist and the psychologist said, you know, I can help you with that getting to the airport too out, uh, way too early thing. And Chloe said, I don't want help with that. I love that. I yeah, don't want yeah. to change that. Yeah, but yeah. but I did become my mother in that I'm over. I was overprotective. Uh, if my daughter f- flies to Asia, I follow on flight aware. I follow her plane the whole. And I'll say, I wake sweetie up and go, why would the plane go from thirty six thousand feet to thirty five thousand feet over the p- middle of the Pacific? What's going on here? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I become my dad in that I'm a you know, happy guy that slaps guys on the back and says, come on, cheer up. And uh, yeah, fuck you. I don't want to be cheered up or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but you don't think you became your parents, which is pretty good. I did. No, uh, I try, I tried very hard not to. And I do. And I think, and my, to be frank, my ex-wife was a big help with that in that yeah. she made me kind of see a lot of, and it was a very thankless job for her and one that I, you know, wish I had caught on to earlier mm-hmm. where she kind of made me see like, hey, this is this is not a healthy, a healthy 
environment or this is not a healthy dynamic that's going on. And it, you know, and at first, and after years, literally years of me going like, no, what are you talking about? Come on. It's no, that's just, it's just how it is. And going, Oh yeah, you're, you're right. And, um, but I just kind of, I think in, I did kind of, and also lots and lots of therapy has helped Mm me to, um, a get anger issue. You know, like I'm not, I I used to have a bad temper. I don't, I kind of, I try to, uh, one of my, you know, I'm not a big, you know, saying kind of guy, but right. uh, one of my, one of my sort of axioms is work for peace. Like you just, you got to work for peace. So when you, you know, in a household, whatever you do should be working for peace as a, like, cause, cause what do you, cause what, to me, the b- bottom line is always like, what, what is there in winning when you're talking right. about in your own family dynamic and with the people that you love and you live with, like, I'm going to win. Like, right. Who, who, what the fuck are you talking about? There's no winning, you know, there's just, there's just everybody is happier and more peaceful or not, you know? Um, and I, I made a point too, to like one thing that I noticed early on that I had an instinct to do and I'm happy that I did is to really respect my kids like to even as as individuals because I just think a lot of people they just they their kids are like I don't know like uh like little versions of them and so that they decide like no what I want is what you are going to do and I right uh, we never really did that very much we kind of and I you know and I wasn't afraid to apologize when I fucked up and I would fuck up you know I just a couple of years ago told my son, you're the first kid. Everything we do is the first time. Like we've never had a kid as old as you. So every step of your development is going to be our first time dealing with it. That's right. We're going to fuck up. And, you know, you know, kind of trust that we know what we're doing. But but also know like eh, this is the first time we've ever had, you know, a kid go to college or a kid start smoking weed or what, you know, all of that stuff, you know? Yeah, that's really true. I was lucky. Uh, my wife uh, had two daughters when we got married. So I had two training daughters before. <laughs> uh, so they were already I, broken in some they, other way. Well, they were broken in some other way. And because I was not their father, I called myself their best friend. So I was never the dis- disciplinarian. And actually I was there, um, I was often on their side yeah, and I was able to be because they, they were my, and I didn't want to call them my stepdaughters because I didn't think that was fair to their father. So I called them their, I was their best friend. Yeah. So I, I had these two training daughters and that was really helpful. But, but I, I do want to say about peace in the family. I, I have this hat company. Whenever I come up with a, a good idea for a hat thing, I, I'll buy 20, copies yeah i just put in an order for a hat that says think it don't say it uh-huh <laughs> and it would and if 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 my wife never said just thought barry that was a stupid thing to say right but don't say barry that was a stu- i know it was stupid yeah. we're past it so i want everyone in my household to have this hat <laughs> so we can look at each other and go that's right think it don't think it say don't it. say it yep and boy, oh, yeah. would we all be happier. That's one of the, that's one of the, I feel like, uh, biggest lessons of being a grown up. 
because especially I found after after a childhood of of you know taking what I was given and trying to be a good soldier and stuff and then reaching kind of a young adulthood where I was like no wait fuck this I you know I need to say what's on my mind and then get being married for you know a number of years and then realizing oh no no I don't need to say everything like I, there's important yeah. things I need to say, but, but <laughs> right. yeah, they're like the real sort of fine tuning of maturity is like, Oh no, no, no. There's actually the wise choice a lot of the time. And also the selfish choice. This, and I mean, selfish in the best possible way. What's best for me is to just shut the fuck up. That's it. Shut up. And shut don't the say fuck it. Up. Yeah. Yeah. Think it. Don't say it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, where did you grow up? I grew up in Illinois. I grew up in the Midwest. I was uh, born in Michigan. Uh, my dad was a college professor. Uh, they divorced when I was young because my dad my dad came out of the closet when he uh, when I was four, um, mm -hmm. and we moved back in with my grandparents in Illinois. And then I grew up in kind of rural Illinois. It's kind of it, it was seventy miles from Chicago, but at that time it might as well have been one hundred and fifty. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah. it's kind of more all a suburban sprawl, but in those days. It was it was a pretty small town, so yeah. But it was it was you know it was a I I think there were a lot of I think there were a lot of um, adult children in my childhood, and I see you know, and I think that a lot of people that weren't necessarily given the things that they needed, and then they kind of just kept that paradigm rolling, you know, like well, this is what we know. Let's keep this up, you know. Uh, but well, and and you d growing up then, I mean, when, did you did you have any sort of like solace in like were there other relatives that you could kind of find some peace with, or was it kind of always... oh, it was it was just the opposite because another character in my book is called CM the CM, which is cousin Mike the child molester. Oh boy! And for several years, he lived on my in the same couch in the living room where I discovered years later that Susan had satin pant uh, magenta panties. So the, that was an issue. I mean, he was a child molester. He molested uh, relatives, uh, friends in the apartment building, myself. And when my dad was in his mid nineties, one of the people that had been molested uh, is a journalist became a journalist but lived in my building and he wrote this article about being molested as a child and i emailed him and i said hey was that cm the cm that you're writing about and he said yes and we went to breakfast together i hadn't seen him in 50 years yeah i heard horror stories and i went up to my father's apartment i said dad can i see you and i because i had never confronted him about it Mm -hmm. And what they knew, what they didn't know. You assume they know something, but you're not sure how much. And I said, Dad, did you hate Kelly was my mother, his wife. Her maiden name was Kel Kellerman. Did you hate Kelly so much that you let Cousin Mike live with us just so that Kelly would have someone to drive her to the Paramus Park Mall and to antique stores? Because dad was never home. Yeah, yeah. And so I said, what's, what's up with this dad? And dad said, well, look, there are three things you should know. 
One, child molestation didn't have the same stigma back then that it has now. So that makes you go uh, tilt a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then he says, don't forget your mother was so upset and depressed because of all the affairs I was having that, uh, you know, I thought having Mike around would cheer her up. That's also a tilt because he's, and then here's where you have to turn the game off and throw your hands up and, and say, I lose. He said, and here's the thing. I never thought Mike was molesting you. I only thought he was playing with your penis. Wow. So at that point wow. you go, you know, game tilt, game set match. And yeah, I yeah. said to that, you know, well, thanks for the information because you hope against hope they didn't really know. Yeah. But, yeah. but basically what he's saying is, oh yeah, I knew, oh, yeah, but yeah. I knew. It didn't matter enough. It I, didn't matter well, enough. I also like that when you confront him with this, he very quickly has three reasons <laughs> yeah, yeah, why yeah, he's yeah, blameless. Yeah. It isn't right. like he says, like, well, I'm blameless because this, and then it occurs to him later, like, oh, no, no, there's three reasons. I, right. You know, I got yeah. a threefold yeah. reason of how this is not my fault. Right. Wow. And so that's got to, you know, that's got to, like, color just everything in terms of, especially like your adolescence and your own sort of, you know, maturity. Well, you know, the truth is it did and it didn't. And I don't want to make light of it, mm -hmm. but I am a totally uh, well, good functioning adult. I make a living. I tell people what to do. And I really, at some point, want to talk to you about how brilliant you are in big trouble. Oh, thank you very much. Because you're just really brilliant. And oh, thank you. your partner was Jake Kasdan, Larry I know, Kasdan's I know. son. Yeah. Who's, uh, but boy, you two are great. But I swear, Andy, we got the raw deal with that movie because we were going to come out a couple weeks right after 9-11. Yeah, yeah. And our that. movie was about someone who steals a nuclear bomb yep. and blows it and uses it by accident. So it was the wrong time to come out. But uh, so anyway, my point is, and we'll get back to you and how brilliant okay, you are. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, I, I can, it, yeah, it affected me, but it didn't make me uh, unavailable as a dad or a person or yeah, yeah. A, a film director or a cinematographer or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to say it, it addled me, but I also don't want to say, oh, it was all fun. And in the book, I, I deal with it, but, uh, and sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes it's funny, just like yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now you, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you went to a, uh, an arts high school. Were you a creative kid? I mean, was it something at least, did your parents at least kind of foster that in you? Yeah. Uh, and I think we might get into this when we talk about the three questions. Uh, well, we're already talking about <laughs> oh, it. Are we? Are this, we? This, oh, is the, this is the where you come from part. Oh, oh OK. Yeah, yeah. Well, the great thing about my parents and they were they were artistic in their own ways. My mother was the stage manager of the stage door canteen during World War Two, according to her. So, yeah, yeah. That. That may or may not be true. Um, 
because <laughs> she was a pathological liar. But one of the great things about my parents is they never said you should be a doctor, a lawyer, uh, you know, uh, anything like that. They, yeah. my mother said, you should go into the arts. Uh, she was a art teacher in my elementary school, and she said you should be some sort of artist. And my father, God love him, said, figure out what you want to do in life that will bring you pleasure. And somehow you'll figure out how to make a living doing it. Yeah. Don't take a job. And he was a freelancer, a salesman all his life. I've always been a freelancer. I've never, you know, punched a clock or anything. I was a French horn player. I went to music and art high school in Manhattan and was the best high school French horn player in New York City. Oh, wow. Which means New York State. And yeah, no, I, but here's the reason why I wanted to play the trumpet. This is in 1960, so I'm seven years old. No, maybe it's 63, I'm 10. I wanted to play the trumpet. And my mother says, there are a million trumpet players. But if you play the French horn, and in eight years, this Vietnam thing becomes a real serious war, and you're a good French horn player, you'll be in the army band and not in the infantry. Wow. So she, she was really uh, very protective, but kind of ahead of, of the yeah, yeah. game. Yeah. That's kind so, of like in terms of paranoia, that's like paranoia as like a beneficial organism, like a, <laughs> like a, you know, like a beneficial germ. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. So she, her fear was always her strength. Her, her weakness was her strength. Yeah. She, and she literally said to a 10 year old, if you're drafted in eight years wow. and this little skirmish becomes a war, you will have an out and it will be that you'll be in the army band. Right. And she said, and then you be, can become a trumpet player later because it's the same mouthpiece. It is in the same mouthpiece. You can't change instruments if in, in the brass section like that. Right, right. But I ended up being the best French horn player in New York City high school system. So, yeah. uh, so I went to music and art high school instead of George Washington High School in Upper Manhattan, where I would have been mugged and killed. Okay. It was a dangerous place. So mom, mom knew. Yeah, yeah. Now, did you, did you take your French horn playing past high school, or was that kind of? No, you, you know, I had never, enough. I knew I wasn't going to make a living as a horn player, nor did yeah. I want to. I, yeah. I wanted to do something different. And truthfully, I didn't want to go to Juilliard or, or, or anything like that. And I didn't see myself doing that for a living. So yeah. I did take it. I spent my senior year in college at Hampshire College, and I took it up there because I thought the girls would be impressed by seeing this French horn sitting in my room. Yeah. I was very proud of uh, Hampshire because over the year, uh, I had sex with a lot of women, and many of them became lesbians after having sex with me, <laughs> which I took as, wow. I could be wrong, but I took it as a compliment because I sure. assumed after me, no other man could satisfy them. You're, you were the pinnacle of the mountain of, of maleness. And, uh, you know, once you've been to the pinnacle, what are you going to go? You're going to climb down? No. No. Yeah. You're going to just jump to a different mountain altogether. <laughs> there you go. That's precisely yeah. it. Um, 
Well, was it tough to get away from your folks, like when you went away to college? Well, my mother, when I was graduating high school, my mother said if I went to sleepaway school, others call it college, <laughs> she, she would commit suicide. Sleepaway school. Yeah. She pulled out the suicide card again. So I spent three years, the first three years, I went to NYU. They had a campus in the Bronx. I would drive there Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday and only take political science classes because it met between nine and two and I could get 30 credits a year and only go to college three days a week. It was like day camp. Yeah, it, yeah. Had no, it had no dorms or anything like that. Yeah. And then when and I was it got gonna, you out of the, it got you out of the house. Not really, because uh, I was living at home. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, because mom said she'd commit suicide. Yeah, so I was yeah. living at home in Washington Heights. And then they sold their campus. And they said, you have to go downtown for your senior year. I said, I, I, I don't want to. That wasn't the deal I made. And they said, all right, go to any college you want. Transfer the credits back to NYU. And it would be like your senior year abroad, but at any college you want. And I yeah. thought, I get to go away to college and mom commits suicide. Two <laughs> birds, one stone. This is fantastic. <laughs> so I, I went to Hanford. It's not, it's not yeah. your fault. In her eulogy, you could say, thanks, NYU. Like your real estate deal just killed my mother. By my mother. Or I could say, I gave mom what she wanted. <laughs> because let's face it, she was not happy as a living yeah. person. Yeah. So uh, I went to uh, Hampshire College for my senior year uh, in Amherst, Massachusetts. But mom reneged. And she remained alive for decades longer. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my loves are growing? Now, how does it? How does that transfer to filmmaking? At what point do you start to think I'm going to be a filmmaker? Uh, it was totally accidental. Yeah. It. I. I do think that whatever I did, I would be good at it. And like, if if I had to become a plumber. Yeah. You would be saying, "Well, let's get Barry. He really the last time he was." He, He's great. 
Yeah. Or if I was a DJ or if I was a long distance truck driver, I think I would I would be re- responsible enough to be good at it. You know? what, do you, what do you attribute that to? Because I have a similar thing. Like if I do something, I'm going to do it well. And I think somehow it is like this self-sufficiency that was instilled in me by kind of being expected to be an adult too young. Yeah, I think it was A, being an only child. Yeah. So I had to sort of create my own world. B, my father sort of being a salesman and often starting businesses and going into chapter 11. I, I just, he was always working seven days a week. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that, I mean, I think the best thing I could ever do is be a FedEx driver. I would be the best <laughs> FedEx guy. I would find you yeah. or I would say, Andy, listen, I heard you're going on vacation. Do you want to leave me your keys so I can drop the stuff and no one will sit? I would be the best at that. So. But to answer your question, I thought I wanted to be a still photographer, but, um, and my idol was this uh, uh, photojournalist named Elliot Erwitt, uh, and I eventually went to work for him by accident, and I'm now married to the woman who was married to him when I met him, but that's a different story than it sounds. I guess, yeah, yeah. Yeah, baby. And, but... I didn't I mean, think I'd be a you good re- enough. You really admired that guy. <laughs> well. <laughs> Man, that is really taking hero worship one extra step. But seriously. <laughs> the weird thing is when I got out of high school, college, and graduate film school, the first call I made was to Elliot Erwitt to see if he needed an, assist, an assistant. Each time he said, my stable is full. Each time, high school, college, graduate school. And then years later, I was shooting industrials with my 16 millimeter camera. And this gaffer said, there's this guy who needs an assistant. He just bought all the 60 millimeter equipment. I think you'd be great for him. He doesn't, he wants to get into the film business, blah, blah. And it was Elliot Erwitt. Oh, wow. And I, and so I met Elliot. I met Susan, who was pregnant with their second child at that time, and spent years with them traveling around the world. We did a series of HBO documentaries called The Great Pleasure Hunt. We did segments for uh, 60 Minutes in 2020. And uh, it, was, it was fantastic. And then Elliot and Susan, I became Susan's best girlfriend. Yeah. I would read Self Magazine and say to her, have you and Elliot tried the Today Sponge? It's a new kind of contraceptive. <laughs> and they split up, and uh, it was uh, not an easy split up. And Elliot uh, said to everyone, you're either my friend or hers. And I, oh, nice. yeah. and I said, uh, I, I pick her. Yeah. So then we were friends for several years, and then eventually uh, it just and we were friends because we were such good friends. We didn't want to screw that up. Yeah. And eventually, years later, we became lovers, and then we got married, and we've been yeah. married for 31 years. So in other words, you screwed it up. 
I screwed it up. I screwed up our friendship. <laughs> yeah, we were trying so hard to not screw it up, and you screwed it up. I screwed it up, but now with this new hat that says "Think it, don't yeah. say it," I think <laughs> we're good it. for another thirty years. I swear. <laughs> so, literally, for lack of anything better to do, and realizing I didn't want to be a still photographer, my mother said to me a year after I graduated at Hampshire and was working at Frenchie's Color Lab making. Cibachrome prints. My mother said, why don't you go to film school? You like writing. You like still photography. Film is just a lot of still frames put together, which yeah. it isn't. Yeah, and, yeah. and she said, and dad and I will pay for your graduate school, which of course they didn't. <laughs> and so I went to NYU and over those three years of graduate film school, I discovered I had an ability to be a cameraman. And that's, yeah. Uh, you know, that it was really new lenses and knew a lot of the technical end from my years of wanting to be a still photographer. And this is way before video. You know, this is 16 millimeter. When I got out of film school, I bought a used 16 millimeter camera because I, A, I felt if I owned a camera, I could call myself a cameraman without feeling like a dilettante. Yes. And B... My father had said, figure out what you want to do in life, and somehow you'll figure out how to make a living doing it. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I learned from my dad, and I recommend this to every young person who asked me how to move up in the film business, declare what you are and you will be that person. Don't, I never worked my way up as a camera assistant and a camera operator. I said, I am a cameraman. Mm -hmm. And I only shot. I never worked my way up. And no, I always you didn't pull focus or never pulled load focus. mags or anything like that. Nope. And I had no respect for the camera crew. When I became a cinematographer, I always thought they were the whiners. I always went to drink <laughs> with the grips and the electricians and the manly men. I hated the camera crew because I never did it. I never yeah. appreciated that it was that it was hard. But um, I do believe that if you can declare yourself what you are, and if you have that work ethic that you and I have, I mean, don't you feel you declared yourself to a certain extent, or do you feel you work your way up through hard knocks? Well, I mean, there was, I mean, hard knocks is, I mean, anyone that calls uh, improv class and doing improv shows hard knocks is really right has had it pretty soft because it's not, you know, it's not like I was, at, you know, at the front of, of you know, in, in, in Laos or something, you know, I mean, I, uh, but I, I, I did take a lot of solace and direction. And this is one thing, this is a thing that like, I think I, I there, there's a, there's kind of a, a common thought that, well, you just have to believe in yourself. Right. And I just kind of feel like, no, it's kind of good to take the notes of others. Like, right. if, you know, like if people, if, if everyone around you doesn't seem to think you're good at something, odds are you're not that good at it. Right, right. Whereas if you're surrounded by people who tell you, hey, you're really pretty good at this and it, and it manifests itself in different ways. Like I remember, I was part of a, an improv theater. It's still there in Chicago called the Annoyance Theater. And uh, it was actually the idea of Jill Soloway, who uh, 
you know, sure. the writer producer Jill Soloway, who was in that in that group at the time, she had an idea that we would have our own New Year's Eve party, sort of like award ceremony. And uh, they went to the di- the the you know, like the ninety nine cent store, and they had uh, all these duck candles, like little white duck candles. Uh-huh. And so they decided they bought a bunch of them, called them the duckies. And I won two duckies that night, which totally, yeah, I won like supporting actor and best male improviser. And wow. I was, you know, out of the whole theater. And that was really, that really was a turning point for me to feel like, oh, wow. If everybody thinks this high, I mean, I knew I was good at it, but I didn't, right. under, I didn't know that like I was that highly thought of by my peers. So, you know, I, I, I definitely, I, I needed some kind of some kind of uh, input from other people. But I also, too, one thing I noticed, because I went to film school. I went to Columbia College in Chicago because I couldn't, I couldn't, there was still this, I couldn't commit to being a performer because it just seemed too, too precious and too, right, you know, right. too up your own ass and everything. Yeah. But I thought I do like working in movies, and there was a lot of movies being shot in Chicago, which made it seem more accessible to me. That like I can work in the film industry in Chicago. Um, but I started to notice when I got out and, and started working mainly on commercials and industrials, all the dire- none of the directors started out getting coffee. You know what I mean? Right. They were either right. they were either film professors that made some short films. Or they were editors. Maybe they got coffee for editors, but nobody there was had started out as a PA on sets and then became a director. And we're just talking about about commercials too. And you know, a lot of ad agency people. And that to me was it because I still, you know, I I have directed some commercials and I like directing. And it's a like for me, it's like a fun problem solving game because it is just it's a series. It's like a linear series of decisions, and you just kind of. You just every you don't have to know everything. You just have to have a good answer for every question that you're asked. And uh, I I kind of had that sense that I'm never going to become a director this way. And that was one of the things that was floating around in my mind. So I thought I might as well just be a performer now because a it's fun. And and then when I started doing it, I realized that that was my tribe anyway. That was my people. So right. But you, know. you graduated college. Well, sorta. I, I mean, I didn't get a diploma, but I went there for four years. And right. Then, okay. Yeah. And when I got out, I realized too that you know, for film school, a diploma doesn't really, doesn't really all. matter. Yeah. So, and I figured my fallback, even if the mm-hmm. film business fell through, um, was uh, writing ad copy, and I can. Do, uh-huh. You don't need a, de- a degree for that either. So. And there are a lot of big ad agencies. In Chicago, or still the war back then. Still, yeah. still are, yeah. It's funny what you're saying about directing, because I tell people that all directing is, is having opinions about everything. Yeah. And that no prop guy, when the prop guy says you want the green one or the red one, they don't want you to say, oh, I don't care, you choose. Yeah. You just have to say the green one, even if you don't care, even if you're wrong, yeah. they just want answers. And then... Thursday night, you've run out of answers for the week. Yeah. And you get home and your wife says, what do you want for dinner? And you say, you know what? You, I don't want to answer another <laughs> because I still have Friday ahead of me. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. 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 
I'll take a book. Now, I, what was some of your earliest where I, I, I saw something in the book that you actually directed some porno. Now I shot, I shot, I shot nine feature length pornos in nine days, which I'm very proud of because. Wow. uh, Yeah. Feature length, you mean an hour and a half? Yeah, an hour and a half, 16 millimeters. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I I figured out a way to do it because I had gone to film school. So I was the guy who brought block shooting into porno. Into porn. Wow. So uh, explain explain block shooting just for people. So block shooting is, uh, let's say, you and I'm directing you, and you're in six episodes of nine. Yeah. We shoot out all your stuff in each episode, even so we'll shoot scene three in episode one, shoot seven in episode two. So once we have you, we'll yeah. shoot all the scenes with you. Well, on the porno, what I did is I once we lit a set, because all the sets were in a loft on 17th Street and 5th, we'd shoot the bathroom or the bedroom or the kitchen. So it'd be scene one from movie two, scene seven from movie six, but any scene that took place in the bedroom, right? we would shoot and bring actors in and out for the nine days. And in fact, uh, when the producer director, Dick of Mr. Mustard Productions, sure. Put, put, sure, put them all together, he discovered that one entire movie, every sex scene took place on a desk because he wasn't paying any attention to... <laughs> <laughs> but listen, he, no, he is, have people fuck on a desk. Let them fuck yeah. on a desk. It's easy. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And we're lit. Uh, no, it was truly horrible. You, you know, if you was that your camera? Was that why you got this gig? Because it was your camera? Yes. And the reason I took the job is because it literally paid. We paid my buddy and I paid five grand for the camera. We rented it for 400 a day for nine days. So that's 3,600 bucks. We paid for more than half of the camera right out of film school. Sure. Wow. So, but it was horrible. Truly, the smells are disgusting. I always say that if they release pornos with smell vision <laughs> it would destroy the. And then I realized it wouldn't destroy the business because just like they loop the dialogue, they would have like loop vanilla and yes. cherry smells yes, yes. in the theater. But. Everyone, would, uh, like teenagers would think that fucking smells like cookies baking. <laughs> yeah, that's you know? right. Yeah. You know? And it doesn't. <laughs> it does not. No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, are you in, you're in New York this whole time? Is that kind of when you start to graduate to cinematography for for beyond industrials and beyond sort of the smaller projects? Y- yes. Uh, I was living both in Upper Manhattan, and also I grew, lived for many years in the East Village, and then someone got killed on my block, and a friend got me to move to the Upper West Side, and then I bought a starter house in East Hampton. My theory being, if people thought I lived in East Hampton, they would hire me as a cinematographer. Yeah. You'll seem classy. Yeah, wow, yeah. this guy's good. He's owns a so, so yeah, and then one night again, due to buying this camera. Uh, I was at a party where the daughter who was throwing the party, her father actually was the CEO, president, and and one other thing of Young and Rubicamp, okay. the ad agency. Yep. So Hillary throws this party, all Darien, Connecticut wasps, and there are two Jews at this party. 
me at this end of the room and a guy that looks like Howard Stern at the other end of the room, and that's Joel Cohen. So Joel and I smell each other. The, we smell the Jewish vibe. Yeah, yeah. And, and we, we start to talk, and he had recently graduated undergraduate film school, and he and his brother Ethan had written this script called Blood Simple. Oh, wow. And they were going to shoot a trailer. Joel was the assistant editor, the only job he had before he became the director that he became, for Sam Raimi on Evil Dead. Uh, and Sam said to Joel, shoot a trailer, because Evil Dead was a low-budget thing that Sam had done. Shoot a trailer for Blood Simple like it's a finished movie. Because you can't go to dentists and doctors and say, read this script and give me $15,000 for a point. Yeah. But if you shoot a trailer, you can show the dentist investment group and the doctor's investing group a trailer. And A, they go, this looks like a real movie. I'll invest. And B, they go, it looks like you know what you're doing. Yeah. Because... So Joel's and I imagine I, I imagine too on a very basic human level, you those do dentists and doctors want to know what happens. They're caught up right. in the yeah. trailer. Yeah, I, like, right. I want to yeah. see that story. I want to yeah. see this movie. Yeah, yeah. So Joel says, so Ethan and I, you know, next month are going to shoot this trailer, and I said, well, I own a camera, and he said, okay, you're hired. So wow. Joe hires me to shoot again, just because I own the 16 millimeter used CP 16 reflex camera. So we shoot the trailer. We don't even use my camera. I convinced them to shoot it on 35 millimeter because I thought it would look better. But had you, sh uh, had you shot on 35 at that point? Never. Never, oh, that's ever, great. Ever, what a ever, good scam. Ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys, and you really we, should shoot on, 35, shoot on 35. In my experience. And we, we went to Furco and rented it over President's Weekend. So we rented the camera. We picked up the camera Thursday night for Friday rental. So we had the camera Thursday night, Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday, Sunday night, Monday, Monday night, because it was President's Weekend and Monday was a holiday. So, so you we got didn't a free have, day. So we got a free day. So for a one-day rental, we had the camera for five days five nights and four days wow. shot the, this amazing looking trailer. It took us a year, but we raised the money to make blood simple from dentists and doctors and inventors and stuff. And literally the first day on the set of blood simple, which then eventually gets shown at the, you know, New York film festival and all yeah. that was the first day that Joel, Ethan and I had ever been on a movie set. And that's why I say, declare what you want to be. Ethan had never produced. Joel had never directed outside of film school. I had never seen, except for that one day rental, a 35 millimeter camera I had never been on a feature movie set. And we made blood simple. Now, is there, do you have more experienced crew to help you like a more experienced, like an AD or somebody to help you with the scheduling and the shot list or anything? Or is that just, is that just, you're just winging it? No, we weren't winging it. The AD actually was my ex-girlfriend, Debbie Reinish, uh, uh -huh. who would every day look at the sets we pick and go, I don't want to rain on your parade, but you can't shoot here. There's not enough room. And we'd go, no, there is. Well, I'm going to rain on your parade because there's not enough room. So there was that. But we <laughs> did have a professional grip. Yeah. And that really helped me because 
we move the camera a great deal and the grips are the guys that build things and move the camera and responsible for laying dolly track and all mm -hmm. that. And he was a real grip, a real LA grip with a handlebar mustache and a cowboy hat and his wife's astrologist. Already a good story. His wife's astrologist said, LA is about to have an earthquake. You've got to get out. Tom and his wife moved to Austin, Texas. Tom starts a sheetrock business that's not going well. And the Jewish kids come from New York City and want to make blood simple in Austin, Texas and hire him as a key grip. And he gets to work in the movie business at his home. So uh, we had a great key grip. In fact, he built this rig. There's a shot where Fran McDormand and the camera are locked together. She was the lead in Blood Simple. And we pivot both of them 90 degrees through space. So it looks like oh, since yeah. the camera and her are locked together, it looks like she's not moving at all, but the world yeah. is flipping around her. It's a great shot. And Tom designed all this rig with, you know, EMT and couples and rigging equipment. And I, I asked Tom, how did you come up with the idea for the for the rig? And he said, well, I saw something very similar to it in Hustler magazine <laughs> as a sex device. In fact, if you boys don't mind, I'd love to hold on to this at the end <laughs> of the show. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine how the, the technology would apply to both medium um. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, we gave it to him at the end of the show. Yeah, right? sure. There you go, buddy. There you go, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's an amazing movie. And that, as, as a film student, that was a very sort of, that was one of those movies that made you feel like, wow, this is coming from nowhere. I didn't know anything right. about you guys, but just like, wow, what a striking, poised, uh, kind of created or fully realized world from nowhere and kind of, you know. Totally from nowhere. And because we were from nowhere, we hadn't done anything before. And I think because we hadn't done it before, we felt very free to do all this very unusual stuff. You know, one of the things that Joel and Ethan and I uh, sort of agreed on right away is that the camera could be a character in the movie. Yeah. That it's not just a recording device. It's actually can tell a story. So we did shots like there's a shot where the camera tracks along the top of a bar, but there's a drunk asleep on the bar and the yeah. camera just booms up over the drunk. And it's so self-conscious. It's yeah. so, but you know, our investors hated the movie. They saw it one night. We rented a cinema on 57th Street called the Bombay Cinema in Manhattan. Two-thirds walked out. They didn't realize it was a comedy. They didn't get the sort of self-conscious nature of the storytelling. And we were devastated. We finished the movie. It got accepted to the New York Film Festival somehow. We had never had a decent screening. And I said to Joel and Ethan, and this is in the book, I, I talk about Blood Simple for a couple of chapters. I said, hey, I think that the critics are watching Blood Simple right now. We're across the street. Let's go over to Lincoln Center. 
and 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 see what the reaction is. And Joel and Ethan said, "Oh, please don't, bah, don't make us do it. Please, not again. We don't want to see that movie ever." Ah, come on. And we, as we're going into the theater, we're hearing laughter. Yeah. And literally, Ethan says, "It's the wrong theater." And we continue to, <laughs> and then we get closer, and we hear more laughter. And Joel says. It must be the wrong time. And we open the back door and we see that there's a beautiful print of Blood Simple and the critics are loving it. And that night, the New York Times, Janet Maslin wrote the review in the New York Times. And she went on and on about the movie, said Joel and Ethan are going to become famous film directors. And that Barry Sonnenfeld, who had never shot anything was well she didn't say that i'm just editorializing it uh will become a famous cinematographer and went on for the last two paragraphs about the way it was shot and suddenly that night joel and ethan and i had careers yeah yeah wow now does does la pull you in after that does la drag you away from new york or we've never sweetie and i have rented 11 houses in la Uh, Here's the thing about L.A. I don't want to put it down. I really like working in L.A. The stages are great. The crews are good. You can get uh, cranes at 11 o'clock Friday night because you suddenly, you know, it's where they make movies. And I, I, uh, I really like working there, but I never, ever want to be there if I don't have a job. I don't want someone coming up to me at Toscana and going, how many years ago did you retire? I didn't retire. I'm still not retired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get that. I get that. I live in Burbank. So you right. see, see how much I want to, you know, <laughs> I, and I, I mean, I, sometimes I do wonder, or I do worry. Like, I feel like, am I a little too curmudgeonly for my own good? <laughs> I do have to retire at some point. So I, maybe I should not be so curmudgeonly about all these fucking phony assholes. Uh, so um, then you're now you're a DP and you're working yeah. uh, at, at some point you go, OK, and now I'm going to direct. Nope. No, I had uh, I had no in, in the same way. I had no interest in the film business until I got in the film business. I was very happy being a cinematographer. I was really good at it. Uh, I designed all the shots for all the movies uh, I, I shot. I mean, I worked with the Coen brothers and worked with Danny. You know, I shot Blood Simple, Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing. I shot Throw Mama from the Train and Big. I shot When Harry Met Sally and Misery. And I shot another movie that my credit on it is called Lighting Consultant, which is three o'clock high. Uh-huh. Because, uh, for, but that's Phil Juano directed because I wasn't in the union and the union wouldn't give me a, a cinematography credit. I was very happy as a cameraman. I worked with manly men who were, you know, grips and electricians. And I could point and say, let's put a light on that rooftop. And they would. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's pretty great. It's pretty great. Yeah. And I felt totally in control of my craft. You know, things looked exactly the way I wanted them to. I, I used the camera, as I said, as a storytelling device, which was my way of being an actor in the movie without having to act. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you know, on Raising Arizona, there's all that camera going over fountains and cars and up ladders. And it's a character in the movie, you know. Mm-hmm. And then do you know Scott Rudin at all? Have you worked with Scott? I, I don't know him, but I know of him, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. So he even then he was considered one of the best producers with um, immaculate taste. And uh, like my mother uh, was a certain amount of pathological liar. Uh, (laughs) He screamed a lot. And he he sent me the script when I was finishing Misery. I was in L.A. living at the time at the uh, Four Seasons Hotel on Delhini. Yeah. And uh, uh, they said, Scott Rudin dropped off the script. He wants you to read it in two hours and meet him at Hugo's which is yeah. some restaurant. Yeah. 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 It's a uh, health food restaurant. Yeah. Uh, scrambled yeah, yeah. egg and pasta. Just yeah, what you yeah, want. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and so I read the script and I had grown up with the New Yorker magazine. You know, if you're Jewish and you live on the Upper West Side or Washington Heights, uh, you read the New Yorker and or your parents did. So I was very aware of Charles Adams's cartoons. And I love them because they were, they were incredibly visual. And mm-hmm. you had to find where the joke was. You would sometimes look at the cartoon and go, I don't get it. And then go, oh, wait, he's got a pair of scissors. Oh, that's yeah, really yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. So I told Rudin that I wasn't looking to direct. And I was happy being a cinematographer. And I said, and besides, why me? And he said, well, I went to Terry Gilliam and Tim Burton. They both passed. And I said, well, since all the good ones passed, maybe I'd hire you. I said, thanks. (laughs) So he said, look, if I can get you the job, will you do it? And I said, I'll do it, but we got to rewrite the script. And he said, Paul Rudnick, I got the guy. So I said, yeah, sure. And he convinced Orion, which at the time was known as the director friendly studio. You know, Uh they did a a lot of great movies, uh, you know, that were all very director driven. Uh, so Orion hired me and, uh, uh, I became a director. And I think the reason I was successful was one is I like to answer questions and like to tell people what to do. And it was used to that as a cameraman, but also the, the brilliant thing I did, if I must say so myself was I always believe hire people that are better than you. Because mm-hmm. you're going to get all the credit anyway. I never understand why directors like hire like bad ads and bad. No, hire people so good you you'll get the credit. Just yeah. don't worry. So I hired a really good cameraman, uh, Owen Roizen, who had shot all the French Connection movies and Tootsie, and because I wanted someone so good that he would force me away from the camera. And forced me to work with actors. Uh-huh. And all these other cameramen who became directors, none of them were successful because they just moved their camera operator up to DP, which meant they didn't want to give up being the DP. Right. So, so by hiring Owen Roisman, I was forced to hang out with actors. Who, yeah. who, and I thought I wouldn't know how to talk to them. And then I realized, oh, it's like being a dad. Yeah, yeah. She needs that. Yeah. He needs this. She, But really, at the end of the day, all you ever have to say to an actor is, can we do one twice as fast? Yeah. And suddenly, <laughs> it's so much better. 
it is hilarious how that is that there's so much, you know, cause you know, my, what I've been doing the last eight or nine, 10 years is the Cohen show. And we do, you know, we do little bits. I, I'm not, I haven't done anything long and narrative in a long time, but it's always just faster. Just go faster. faster. Just faster. go faster. And I'll go to, when I've been to table reads or when I do, I do animation voices. I always just think, come on, you know, like I feel like such an old, old hand. I'm just like, come on, come on, just hurry, just go, say it right. faster, faster, faster. Because well, it's, it's, I a, think it's the way people talk. Yeah. B, if actors talk fast enough, it takes away their ability to act. Yes. And all you want is to not see acting. Yes. You want to see B. B. You want to, and literally, my wife is required where in, in our screening room, if we ever go to a movie theater, she has to sit on my right with her hand on my arm. Oh, <laughs> we just lost the camera. With, with my hand on my arm so I can't make the international faster symbol. <laughs> because, listen, I always, listen, I loved Breaking Bad. Yeah. But I, I claim I could have done those five years in one year. <laughs> Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a growing? Do you have any regrets about becoming a director as opposed to just a cameraman? Do you, you know? Uh, I have no regrets. I yeah. really, uh, I really now, which I didn't as a cinematographer, I now love actors. Yeah. I just love being around them. I love what they do. I so appreciate what they do. Uh, I made the mistake, uh, you know, for three years, I was a showrunner on a series of unfortunate events. And I put myself in every episode as a painting. Yeah. You know, uh, and I thought that was a great idea until there was a flashback scene. And I was a painting of, of Alfre Woodard's husband. Yeah. And now there's a flashback with her and Ike. So I actually had to act in this <laughs> scene because I never saw it when I was a painting that sure. years later we would write her into, uh, him into the scene. And I was so bad and uh, and it's so weird because i know what i want from actors which yeah, is yeah. talk fast and don't hit the joke and just be the situation so and and alfrey is saying don't worry about about it honey don't worry just say the lines and i and my wife my daughter and the video assist guy were behind the wall and whenever i got the line out properly they'd go like yes and <laughs> but i was but my point is now I love actors and yeah, yeah. I love being a director. I love being a television showrunner. Yeah. Uh, because then you're even more in charge of everything. Sure. Sure. 
so, uh, and, you know, I always tell my daughter she should be a director because she's highly opinionated and knows what she wants. But she said, you know what, Dad, I, I watched you for the last 26 years on set and it seems too stressful and I'm yeah. not interested. But yeah, yeah. I, I love directing uh, yeah. and I didn't think I would. Yeah. Is there how what would you say from that first from from that first Adams Family movie to now? Like, how have you evolved as a director? Like, what's the biggest change between that Barry and the Barry that directs today? Well, Barry, in many ways, I'm the same director. But I'll tell you what I learned on Adams Family. I learned from two people. One is from Scott Rudin. And what Scott taught me is that everyone's afraid. Every studio is afraid. Every, everyone's afraid. And if you're not afraid and just say, I want this, you'll get it because everyone's too afraid. So Scott would always say, if I can't get Maggie Smith, I'm not doing this movie. And, and any normal person would say, really, Scott, you're really not going to do the movie if you can have Maggie Smith in this one scene where she's a receptionist for one day of shooting. Yeah. Fuck you, Scott. You don't. But instead they go, okay, okay, you can have Maggie Smith. And the other thing I learned was from the editor, Dee Dee Allen, who cut not only Adam's family, but, you know, all the Arthur. Uh, he, she cut um, uh, Serpico and uh, Atta, what's the one with Attica? You know, with... Uh, uh, oh, Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon and Bonnie and Clyde and Reds. Wow. Which is that sometimes when your third act is not working... Don't touch the third act. Touch the second act. Uh, and I really learned how fluid film is and how you can manipulate it. And I remember saying to Didi, I said, should we lose this scene? This is about five months into cutting. And Didi said, yeah. And I said, well, how many months have you known that? And she said, oh, about three. I said, why didn't you say anything? She said, just like a good psychiatrist, she said, you needed to discover when you didn't need the scene. Wow. And, and so I learned that if a scene can be taken out of the movie and the movie still works, it shouldn't be in the movie. Ah, uh, yeah. It's so and, brutal. It's such a brutal truth. And it's such, you don't want to, it, cause it's the same thing. I, I mean, on a smaller level, like when we do comedy bits, a writer thinks of it, a writer writes it, produces it, gets, props makes props and costumes makes costumes and then it just kind of doesn't it's not great and you just kind of it seems so brutal to go no no but it you know it's the the life of the entire organism that really right. matters you know yeah, uh, yeah totally agree yeah yeah now what made you want to write the book at this point and part of it was jerry seinfeld Oh, really? Uh, uh, Jerry is our neighbor here in Telluride, and he and his wife and his kids come up about two weeks a year, you know, over Christmas, New Year's. And he, this is years ago, and he had heard all my, you know, they come up to watch uh, Academy screeners, and I have a great screening room, you know, it's really yeah. great subwoofers. And so he heard all my horror stories about directing Men in Black 3 and how we didn't have scripts and the producers weren't supporting me and the studio wasn't supporting me. And he came up on Christmas Day and said, you know what? You should become a stand-up. And I said, <laughs> really? And he said, you would love stand-up because you're totally in charge. 
You fail or succeed based on your own work. You, your audience tells you what's working, what's not. You try it again. You rewrite it. But there's no outside force saying, put in the scene where Will Smith is in drag in Wild Wild West or anything like that. He said, you would love it. And I said, aren't I like way too old to start my career and stand up? And he said, oh, yeah, you're way too old. It, it will never happen. You won't make any money. I'm just saying you would like doing it. You should it. do said, it. Yeah. You should do it. Yeah, I said, yeah. Yeah, Go to some like... open mics here in <laughs> Telluride. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 A lot of those. But it made me think that it might be enjoyable to do something where I indeed wasn't being told what to do, where yeah. I was in charge of everything. And so I had written the porno chapter 20 years ago for something to do. I had just one weekend written it. So I asked Sweetie to read the porn chapter. And for me, there's nothing that makes me happier than seeing my wife laugh at yeah, something yeah. I've said or done. It's, yeah. it's joyful. Yeah. Same with your children. Yep. She was shaking the bed with laughter. So I said, okay, I can write. Yeah. So I had Jerry telling me, do stand up. Sweetie read the script. And then a guy named David Granger who is the editor-in-chief of Esquire magazine, left Esquire. And for 10 years, I wrote a column in Esquire every month called The Digital Man, where I reviewed iPhones and GPS yeah. navs. And, and I really enjoyed that. And Granger said, do you have a book in you? And I said, you know, I might. And I gave him the porn chapter. And he said, write me two more chapters and we can sell it. So I wrote a chapter called Fear of Flying about my plane crash at Van Nuys Airport in 1999. And also wrote Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, the chapter where I'm page at Madison Square Garden and the title of the book. We went out with those three chapters to six New York publishing houses. They And I'd never written anything, didn't think I ha was a writer. And all six said, we want to buy the book. All six said only if you write it and there's no ghostwriter because I have a very specific voice and yes, uh, yes. Know, and a uh, certain ironic twist. And so we picked uh, Hachette and I wrote this book and it got an amazingly great review in both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Wow. And uh, like, I'm so thrilled. And, you know, a lot of Yiddish papers have been calling me because uh, <laughs> there's certain Jewish things in it. Yeah. But now I'm a writer and I, I could go to the typewriter and you're a writer. Yeah. And I, can, I could write 40 pages a day. In oh, fact, wow. the, the book was twice as long. And just like I think that movies shouldn't be longer than 90 minutes, yeah. I cut out half the chapters. Is that, chapters that's, I that's love. A second, that's a second book. A second book. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That wasn't that's, the intention, but yeah, yeah. I believe that if something can, if the book can work without the chapter, get rid of it. Yeah, just yeah. Just like a movie. Yeah. So, so what's next for you? What's, I mean, what, what do you, where do you want to go from here? What are you not doing that you want to do? I was waiting for you to pretend you were Toscana and you were going to ask me if I was retired. 
No, uh, no, I know you're not. I know you're not. I see. I can see the. I can see the saddle rascal in the back, and I yeah, know that the that, saddle that rascal. Is, that's not of a retired man <laughs> vehicle there. Yeah. I love that phrase. A saddle rascal is genius. <laughs> by the way, I'm gonna get a nameplate for it. In fact. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, first of all, uh, I'm friends with Rob Reiner. You know, I wrote, uh, I, I uh, shot both Misery and When Harry Met Sally. And Rob and Warner Brothers Television are in, negoti- in negotiation with me to option my book. Oh, wow. Because the, I think there's a version of the book where there are several Barry's, you know, there's young Barry, there's middle-aged Barry, there's older Barry, and how you learn why older Barry wears two watches and has three phones and gets to the airport six hours too early because you cut to young Barry and he has no electricity and his father stole his silver dollar collection to pay Con Edison, you know? Oh, boy. So anyway, so there's that. And I have several. I love being a showrunner. And if you ever have a chance to work for Netflix, that's where you want to be. Yeah, they are the best. They really are. So I have several other, you know, you always have projects and they never come to fruition. And I've got someone writing this and some this and I've optioned this. But until it happens. Well, I I will say that I'm really excited because of the three years Sweetie and I were in Vancouver, we got to become permanent residents of Canada. Oh, wow. And we love Vancouver. And I always try to get any show I'm working on to Vancouver so we can, A, live someplace that isn't America at the moment, and B, someplace that's kind of beautiful and and we love. So, uh, so... It's a great town. I've always, yeah, I've always loved whenever I've had to work up there. And that's been, that is like, you know, I've had a steady gig for eight or nine years now, which is a, a, a a blessing. I mean, I'm not a religious person. I don't know a better word than a blessing, but right. um, But yeah, that is one thing that I miss is having that opportunity to go just as, you know, like a little field trip, go work up there for a few, you know, and, and, and you get to have the fantasy of I live here, even though you That's don't. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. And do you do stand up ever? Do you? No, do you I gig? never was. I never was a stand up. I I came from improv. I don't. I don't like. I don't particularly like being on stage by myself. Got uh, it. I tried stand up for a while because it just seemed like it's there. Yeah. And I know a lot of people. Like I know a lot of friends of mine that were improvisers and actors who at this point in their life, they, you know, they can go out and make some money. You know, they can, they can, they come up with a half hour stand up and they can go make some money. I thought maybe I should do that. And it was actually in the middle of hosting at a sketch comedy festival in San Francisco. Uh, mm-hmm. I was on stage hosting a night of uh, Conan writers and standups that had appeared on Conan. And, and so hosting a night of standups and in the middle of my like, 10, 15 minute opening, I realized, yeah. I don't like this. Really? I just, I, just, I just stopped. I was like, I don't like doing this. I, I don't like saying the same thing over and over. Like Got that's it. one of the big things. I don't like saying the same thing over and over. I, I like to surprise myself and I like to surprise other people with, you know, the stuff that just occurs. Um, that makes just, total sense. Yeah. I, I don't, I'm not, I, I'll even like as an actor, I don't like to, 
give people warning that I'm going to do something. You know, when it's that that little spot where you're supposed to improvise something or come up with a new joke. Yeah. I, I don't want to, I want to, I want to get, you know, even if they break, I think it's better. It's better for them to see it, to get them to see it firsthand. And to get I agree. That specialness of like everybody hearing it for the first time, you know? So now do you act, do acting gigs when you're down from Conan? Uh, it, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I just, I can do guest spots, but it's kind of hard just cause I can't, you know, it's hard to go do something for two months, you know, it's Ooh. just, and especially now it's hard to do anything. Uh, now that we're all stuck in our homes, but yeah, yeah. no, I, I still do. And I mean, and that's what, you know, that's, that's my retirement plan is, uh, is just being old and fat on camera. Uh, <laughs> You know, so nice. somewhere, somewhere, somebody will, somebody will hire me to be that. Well, listen, you are for anyone who's a fan of yours who hasn't seen Big Trouble. You're so good in it. Thank uh, you. Uh, I got to, I, and I got to yeah. play twins. I had my first that's time right. playing playing multiples of myself, which I <laughs> that's right. On Arrested Development, they ended up having me play quintuplets, so I've done it before. So really, yeah, yeah. I, I remember hearing lots of stories from David Cross that he would get into the blue outfit, you know, and they would shoot everyone else out and it would be Friday night at like three in the morning and they go, Oh wait, we forgot David's coverage and yeah. he's been waiting in blue for 11 hours. And they say, all right, just put him up against the wall. Shine a light over here. Ready? Good action. And it would never be used that show. Absolutely. Yeah. That show. Cause I guessed it on that show a couple of times. I mean, right. when it was still on the air and there would be, you know, it's 22 minutes and they would have 40 page scripts and just right. for people for people to know mm. it's about a minute a page. If, if not like, if you're lazy, it's a minute a page. Yes, if you're a yes. good director who says do it faster, it's 45 seconds a page. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But still, but it's not 40, no. 40 page scripts means there's a lot of people from set painters to actors working and Working and knowing, like, there's a really good chance this is not going to make the light of day. And it's, you know, it, it's rough. So Mitch was around when you were doing that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was. Yeah. He was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it was all good stuff. It was just there was too much of it. It was. Yeah. I think it was just too hard. You know, some people have a hard time killing their babies. You know, they, yeah. uh, you know, it's like every scene is too good and they go, well, let's just shoot it anyway. And I, you know. I'm from the other school. I'm from your school, which yeah, is like, yeah. no, don't make people work more than they have to because they're going to end up resenting it. So that's right. Um, well, what's the, the you know the third question? Because we've covered the 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 first two. Uh, is the what have you learned? I mean, is there? I mean, I imagine you get like you said, you get asked a lot of kind of what's your advice kind of stuff, and uh, it doesn't even necessarily the ones I like best are the ones that don't have anything to do with work. Uh, you know. Well, then I'll give you one. Okay. As I don't know that I learned this or it just comes with age, but I've become less angry. Yeah. And I, uh, uh, maybe it's the hat, uh, the, uh, <laughs> but you know, Joan, Joan Cusack was in Adam's family values and I hadn't seen her for decades. And then I hired her in the first season of a series of unfortunate events. So we're talking like 40 years or so. Oh, wow. And I said, I don't know why I said this, but I said to Joan, 
isn't it so much better being older? Which is a strange way to reintroduce yourself to an actress, you know? Yes, yes. But I know Joan, I just sense that Joan would appreciate okay. it. Yeah. And Joan said, oh my God, it's fantastic. I'm not jealous anymore. I'm not angry anymore. I don't read the trades anymore. I don't wonder why she got the role. And I, and I said, I know I feel the same way. And, and I think that over the years, and actually the book only even helps this more because it's, it's a new career for me in some ways. But I realized I'm happy with who I am enough. Yes, I'm Jewish. Yes, I'm neurotic. Uh, that's, uh, that's redundant. But in any case, I, I feel so much more relaxed about my career and failures or hits or whatever than I than I used to. And, yeah. I, and, and I, so for me, I think what I learned is, is you just can't compare yourself to anyone else. Because I used to say, I'll tell you this one last story. Um, I helped create Forrest Gump. When I was directing Adam's Family, the head of the studio at that time, Gary Lucchese, gave me the book. He said, we have eight scripts. None of them are any good. I want you to read the book. And the book is like Confederacy of Dunces. The lead character is sort of a big guy who's strong. Yeah. You know, uh, he's like a football player. And he's Forrest Gump. And I said, you know what, Gary? I, I think he sh let's make him fast instead of strong and skinny. And I'll give it to Tom Hanks because I did uh, big with Tom and we became friends. And this seems up his alley. Yeah. So I sent it to Tom and said, you probably don't want to do it because it's another man-child thing. And Tom said, I love it. I'm in. We hired Eric Roth. So I, I really developed that, that movie in many ways. Then Paramount wanted to make Adam's Family Values, and I had to choose between Adam's Family Values and Forrest Gump. And uh, the producer wouldn't let me do both. Uh, Wendy yeah. Feinerman wouldn't let me do both. So Adam's Family was my baby, my child, so I gave up Forrest Gump. I probably should have gotten a producing credit, but I didn't. Forrest Gump comes out, wins the Academy Award. I've never seen it, and I'm devastated, right? And I can't sleep at night, and I'm angry, and uh, this and that. And I run into Marty Brest, uh, who is a director. Yeah, I know, yeah. At, at Danny DeVito's Christmas party. And Marty had had a similar thing where he was involved in several movies and at the last minute he got taken off of them or didn't do them and they became successful. And they said, Marty, you're the perfect guy to tell me how I should get over this because, and I told him the whole story, you know, he had been on war games and several other movies that, and Marty, who looks like a rabbi, uh -huh. in a very rabbinical way, Marty said, have you seen the movie? Have you seen Forrest Gump? And I said, no, Marty, I can't. He said, see it, only then can the healing begin. And I went and I saw it and I realized I would have made a different movie. 
Yeah. It might have been better. It might have been worse, but it wouldn't have been that. It would have been yeah. an hour shorter for one thing. <laughs> and my wife had always been saying to me, you can't think about if only I had directed Gump or this or that. Because if you had, we never would have adopted Chloe. And I said, right, but maybe we would have adopted Chloe anyway and found a treasure test with $50 billion to be really rich. My point is, the other thing I, I have learned and, and embraced strongly now, and this may be an age thing too, is never look back, never say I should have done this because of, of if you know anything about quantum mechanics, if you had done anything differently, everything else changes. Yeah. You could have been hit by a bus six months ago. Yeah. Or you could have found a treasure chest with $50 billion. But my point is, along with not being angry anymore, I've become very sanguine with accepting that everything that exists right now is because of the trillions upon trillions of little decisions that have brought me here talking to you right now. And what could be better than this at this moment in time? Yeah. Yeah, that theory where it works if you're if you're happy with where you are, you know. That just, you know <laughs> if you're a miserable bastard, then it's kind of like well, maybe I should have made a few different choices. You oh know? shit! Now now you, now you got me thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for. Uh, thanks, Andy. Uh, well, Barry, thank you so much for doing this. I when I saw the book and I it was such a, a great excuse to talk to you again, and uh, and I I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, I love this and I love talking to you and I truly loved working with you. In fact, it was only two months ago that Sweetie and I had friends over and they said, let's see something we haven't seen of yours. And I showed them big trouble. Yeah. And you made me laugh so fucking much. Oh, thank you. Have you been drinking? No, crash. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was that. uh the one thing I will always remember in that movie, aside from working with Ben Foster and Zoe Deschanel as team, right. Um, right. was that I had to run and fire a gun, right, and then and then sort of fall flat out. That's and, right. And it was the first time I had ever experienced wrestling mat painted to look just like a driveway, which was like I I still am giddy about that shit like oh my right. god you can fall on this pavement it looks like pavement right um but the sound guy after the second take after i was firing i fired like maybe four shots yeah he, the sound guy came up to me and very discreetly said you're going pew 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 <laughs> every time you squeeze the trigger that's right like, okay all right thank you thank you well this is uh that sound guy is named peter curland he has done every single Coen Brothers movie, and he also worked on the Men in Black movies and Tommy Lee Jones, because we had space guns. Yeah, that, yeah. Right, would go pew, and after everything, <laughs> I'd have to go. And it's one thing saying it to you; it's another yeah. thing saying it to Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, Tommy. Yeah. Don't make the gun sounds. We're going to add them later. <laughs> and I remember Carlin telling me yeah. that you were going pew, 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 pew. Because that's, that's right. That's, that is the toughest sound a gun can make. Oh, pew. yeah. Yeah. Well, your character would have made that sound. I know, actually. I know. It, it, yeah. it actually wasn't that bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right.
All right. Well, Barry, thank you so much. And, uh, and thank you all for listening to another, uh, another edition of the three questions. And we will uh, be here for you next time. I've got a big, big love for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It's produced by me, Kevin Bartelt, executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, associate produced by Jen Samples and Galitza Hayek, and engineered by Will Beckton. And if you haven't already, make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com.